And I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. I, uh, I want to start this morning off with uh, a little bit of an object lesson. I'd like to look at you to look at a picture here from my office. There it is. Uh, if you ever step into my office, those two items will be prominent on display. The flag was my father's flag that was draped over his coffin when uh, we, we buried him in November of 2013. Uh, my father served in uh, the U.S. Army. He served during the Korean conflict. He was deployed to France. Uh, he was the sole surviving son of his family, so we always teased him about going to battle in France during the Korean War. But it was because of that that he was part of what was called the Marshall Plan, which was to rebuild Europe after World War II. That flag is important to me. Uh, I received it the day that they buried him. And when I brought it home, that was November of 2013. In November of 2013, I was knee-deep into research for my doctoral work. And also, I brought it home and I put it in a shelf in my closet. And after I turned in my first draft of my doctoral project, I went out into my garage and I made the flag box that it sits in. And it was my process of grief. It was my reminder of my father who always was a servant. One, one quick story. My dad was a chaplain's assistant. I think the army really becoming a chaplain's assistant really helped him kind of get directed toward becoming a pastor himself. One day he walked into the army hospital. There was a man named Dave. And Dave was there lying on a bed. He had had a, a minor operation. He was recovering. And my dad and Dave got to talking. And eventually my dad led Dave to pray and to ask Jesus Christ to come into his life. Dave went on to be a pastor down in Georgia. Every year that I can remember, in March, Dave would call my father and thank him for leading him to Christ. On his spiritual, what we'd call spiritual birthday, he would call and remind my father. One year he sent my father a suit. Uh, just he, he was constantly grateful. And when I see that flag, I'm reminded of my dad and how he served others. In front of it is a cup. The cup was given to me by our son on the night of his wedding rehearsal. The cup has a quote on it from Jim Valvano. The late Jim Valvano was the coach of the North Carolina Wolfpack and uh, led them to a national championship against the, the highly favored Houston Cougars back in, I think, 1983. Jim Valvano lost his fight with cancer at the age of 47. He died in 1993. He gave a speech sometime between those two events where he talked about his own father. And, and on that cup, if I can get it out, it reads this, my father gave me the greatest gift anyone could give another person. He believed in me. 
I know my son well enough that I know he was kind of saying, thanks, Dad. Thanks for being there. Thanks for believing in me. Uh, I think any godly father should love, lead, serve, and encourage his children to be the best. And I would say this. A godly father also sets the tone for teaching his children, for modeling his children, what we're going to call today a God-centered self-concept. In Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is going to develop that. Uh, The Apostle Paul often saw himself as a spiritual father. He would talk about Timothy, his son, And in our passage today, I believe as a good spiritual father, we're going to see Paul building on that act of being living sacrifices. We saw that last week. We're living sacrifices. We're renewed in our mind. And as we give ourselves to God and he renews our mind as living sacrifices, we can start to understand who we are in God's eyes Living sacrifices renewed in, the, uh, in our thinking, transformed, have a foundation for God-centered self-concept. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let me give you a definition. Let me give you a definition. God-centered self-concept gives me an accurate view of who I am, what I can do, and how I can live wisely in my world. Let me say that again. I know you can read it, but let me just reinforce it. A God-centered self-concept gives me an accurate view of who I am, of what I can do, and how I can live wisely in my world. This morning in Romans 12, 3 through 8, we're going to see the first two of those. A godly, an, an accurate view of who I am, and an accurate view of what I can do. And then for the rest of Romans, after chapter 15, it's going to teach us how to live wisely in our world. But I want you to remember that it begins again with that idea of being a living sacrifice. And notice that a God-centered self-concept begins with God. That's that's so important. If we don't start there, our self-concept is going to be skewed. What does it mean to live out the mercies of God? How how does that look? How does that impact my attitude? How does that impact how I see myself? Well, we're in Romans chapter 12. Let's look together at verse 3. Paul says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with Sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed with, for all of you. There's a lot there. Let me summarize it. A God-centered self-concept gives me an accurate view of self. Paul starts by saying, by the grace of God given to me. What's he saying there? He's basically saying, by God's grace was given to me, and in that grace shows up in my life in the authority that he gave me. God reached out to Paul when Paul, named Saul, was attacking the church, attacking the, the, the Christians, and, and, and God reached out to him. Paul said, that was grace. I didn't deserve that. 
God reached out to me. And he gave me this grace and chose me to be an apostle to the non-Jewish world. And so he's speaking from the standpoint that this is really a cool idea that God chose me. I didn't deserve it. In fact, elsewhere in the New Testament, he calls himself the chief of sinners. But he's speaking from a standpoint that he's living out the reality of being a living sacrifice. And the step in that reality, the first step in living out being a, being a living sacrifice is do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment in accordance to the faith God has given each of you. First, we have a prohibition. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. A big part of having a God-centered self-sacrifice begins with God and His holiness. We've already seen in Romans, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. When I look at who I am in light of God, I've got to look at who I am from the standpoint of humility. I, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. I'm saved by God's grace, but I, I, I wrestle. Romans 7, we saw that. I, we all wrestle with what to do, what's right, and we've got to start from that position of humility. And so... We start with that position of humility. We shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than they ought, but with sober judgment. So don't have too high of a view of who you are. But sober judgment tempers that. A better way of saying that sober judgment is, is sensible evaluation. You see, a human-centered self-concept has an inflated view of self. And that inflated view of self gets bolstered by the surrounding community. And some of the ways that we try to help encourage people sound good until you look a little bit underneath the surface. Sometimes we talk about being true to yourself. Sometimes we talk about being your best self now. And all of those come down to, I get to define what that is. It's a self-centered self-concept. In fact, no one really can define exactly what those statements mean. Or we say these things. You can do anything you set your mind to. Now, there is some truth to that. But there's something misleading about that. Not every person, no matter how diligent they are, no matter how hard they work, no matter how much they set their mind to it, not every person can become an elite professional athlete. In fact, it's less than one-tenth of one percent of all athletes that become professional athletes. So, you know what? You can set your mind to it. Not everyone, no matter how hard they work, can be hugely successful and become a multi-billionaire in business. Not everyone, no matter how hard they study, gets a full academic ride scholarship to college. Yes, it's important to set your mind and to work hard. But it's not always true that you can do anything if you set your mind to it. Then another one, dreams come true if you believe in yourself. So if my dream does not come true, then I fail to believe in myself. I had a dream. I was going to play in the Olympics and then go to the NBA. I worked hard. 
I was the tallest kid in my sixth grade class. I was one of the tallest in my seventh and eighth grade class. I hit the almost six-foot mark by the time I was a freshman. I could jump high enough that I could almost dunk a basketball. I could shoot from the outside. I could drive to the inside. I worked hard. I had a dream. You know, that dream can't get achieved if your mother won't let you play high school sports. Nobody notices somebody that plays church league basketball. That dream didn't get achieved because of my own stature. You know, I, you, the average, you know, if you're my height and you want to go to the NBA, you got to be really, really, how many reallys can I, good. Because the average guard is 6'2", six, 6'3". Six, I don't even hit six foot. I'm just, just a quarter inch short. My dream didn't come true. Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought. The positive is, have this sober or sensible judgment or evaluation in accordance with the faith God's given you. What does it mean to have sensible evaluation? Do not hear in Paul's words that you should never take stock of the things you do well and be proud of them. Sensible evaluation is fully aware of what one does well. Sensible evaluation is fully aware of the talents one has. Sensible evaluation does not mean you put yourself down. Sensible, that's unreasonable. That's not sensible. Sensible evaluation is very honest about one that does not, what one does not do well. It is okay. It is very acceptable to say, that's not something I can do very well. I like to make things. I like to fix things. Please don't ask me to do plumbing other than maybe attaching one thing to another. Don't ask me to sweat copper pipes with solder. I can't do it. I have tried, and the mess on the floor after I'm done and thought I had it right is awful. I can't do it. I enjoy Bible study. I think I'm pretty good at preaching. But I am by no means a Hebrew or Greek scholar. I have a lot of tools that I've spent a lot of money on to help me understand the Greek and the Hebrew, the original languages of the Bible. I love to read. I read a lot. I just bought a new book this morning for my Kindle. I love to read, but, and I love to learn, but I don't read really fast. I'm not a speed reader. In fact, sometimes I have to read a paragraph over and over again to really get it. Somebody once told me that because I read well verbally, that I probably won't read fast silently because I hear voices in my head. <laughs> and, and I do. When I'm reading a novel, I have voices in my head assigned to everybody in the novel. You know, I, I don't read fast. It's okay. It's okay to say I do this real good and I don't do that good. That's sensible evaluation. But sensible evaluation should also look at who one is in light of the work of God in the world. 
You see, everybody in my hearing right now, every person in my hearing is a creature created in the image of God. Let that sink in. You are a creature created in the image of God. Sensible evaluation realizes that's who I am. God started this process that, that brought about the whole birthing process. And having been in the delivery room with my wife three times and, and seeing my, my children, holding all three of my children in my arms when they were just minutes old, was the closest I ever came and will ever come to creation. And that not only are you and I creatures created in the image of God, because of that we have infinite value and worth. You have characteristics in you because you are in the image of God, a representative of God. You have characteristics. I have characteristics that are God-like characteristics. We can communicate. We can think rationally. We can make decisions, we can plan, we can create. We can make stuff out of nothing almost. We're valuable to God. So valuable to Him that He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. Because of who God is, and because of the fact that He created you, you have value and worth you're a person of value and worth you are you exist you live because the god of the universe decided to set into process this into motion this process by which you were created sensible evaluation it means that i'm aware of what i can do it means I'm aware of what I can't do. Sensible evaluation means I'm aware that I can't do everything on my own. I need other people. I need you. Hopefully you need me. I need the skills of other people. I need the experiences of other people. I need to hear the stories of other people. I need the wisdom of other people. I need the skills and the gifts and the knowledge of other people. Sensible evaluation reminds me, I can't do this life totally on my own. I need other people. There is no such thing as a self-made person. Every person, whatever goals, whatever, whatever they've achieved in life, they needed other people along the way in a one way, shape, or form. Sensible evaluation means I view myself in light of God's standards. Paul says, look at yourself with sober judgment, sensible evaluation in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. The measure of faith, I believe, is that reminder of the fact that I am here in this place, I am in this relationship with God through my faith in Jesus Christ. Because of that faith, I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As a result of my faith, 
Jesus in, in Jesus and his work. The, the word that's translated distributed is a word that means measure or standard. There's a standard that God's given us, and that standard is, is his son, Jesus Christ. And that standard of faith is that standard in which I believe that. You know, the other day I made a, something over there at the missionary residence, a handrail, and I used a, a tape measure, you know, and, and it's like, you know, how do I know that if, if Bill came and he wanted to just check my measurements, how do we know that our tape measures are the same? How do we know that when he measures something at 50 inches, it's going to be the same as when I measure something at 50 inches? Because there's a standard. There's actually a department in our government, the, the Office of Weights and Measures. And there's a standard for what an inch is. There's a standard for what a foot is. There's a standard for how, much a pound, how many ounces are in a pound. There's a standard. And because of that standard, then there's a standard of that, that is accurate. We can be the same. And God's standard is Jesus, and our standard is our faith in Him. Because He's a sovereign God, He gives us the ability to exercise faith. See, we don't live in isolation. We live in community. And in this context, Paul's talking about a faith community. So the first thing he reminds us is just, when you have a God-centered self-concept, you have an accurate view of who you are in light of who God is. But then he takes it another step. A God-centered self-concept gives me an accurate view of my faith community. Look at verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Paul now is reminding his first readers of the importance of a healthy community, a healthy faith community. And so he reminds them that this God-centered self-concept helps them to see their faith community accurately. Now, Paul has used, will use the illustration of the body here. He uses it in 1 Corinthians. It's an important illustration. The body has many members. The body has many parts. Have you ever thought, I mean, just, don't worry. I'm not going to go into anatomy and physiology. But it's just amazing how our bodies work. It's amazing how they function, especially when they function well. You know, as we get older, they don't function as well. And we know that. Not every part has the same function. But I'm going to tell you, you, you sprain your thumb and you realize how much you need your thumb. You don't think about it until it's injured. You get up at night and you stub your toe and you feel the pain all the way through your body. And it could probably impact how you walk for a minute or even longer. And it might even bring a tear to your eye. All different functions of the body, the pain function, the, the tear function, just the, the, maybe the words you say function when you do stub your toe. They're all there. You know, the different things all working together. The body responds as a unit. I was telling somebody once a long story that I won't go into, but I, ha I was bringing our church bus back from being painted and they were supposed to repair the steering. They didn't. 
I ended up wrecking the church bus. The night before, we were to take 45 kids to camp to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We still got them there. God worked. That was a lot of piggyback. No, uh, but God, we got there. But, but, you know, it was several years later. I went to a chiropractor. He took the next way. He goes, you've been in a car accident. I'm like, no, I haven't. Yeah, you've been in a car accident. I can see some striations in your, you know, I said, Oh, yeah, I was in the bus accident, you know, and, and, and it's like the body responded to that. And, and, and you know, you, if I, I broke my arm once when I was a kid. I can literally take you to the spot on Blue Jay Road in Blue Jay, West Virginia, where I fell and broke my arm. And I had a cast all the way up to here. And all the doctor did was put my bones together. My body, by God's design, knit things back into place the body is amazing and paul says the body is a unit our bodies are one of the most amazing specimens of a complex machine at work and while he doesn't develop it here as much as he does in first corinthians 12 paul wants his readers to think about that metaphor and apply it to their own house church and then to the collection of house churches in rome and beyond in any and every faith community, there are different people with different abilities and different backgrounds and different skill sets and different education and different training and different family backgrounds. And that when we come together as a faith community, we need each and every one. We may have different functions. We may do different jobs here at at Pleasant Hill Community Church, for instance. But every person is important. Every person has something to contribute. We need each other. Paul puts it this way. We belong to one another. There's a mutuality. There's a connection. There's, as it were, a facing one another. We need each other. We were not designed to travel this life in isolation. That's why one of our core values as a church is that we emphasize, especially in this relatively new post-COVID age, connection. We need to connect to one another. We have a campfire every so often. Why? Just to provide an opportunity for connection. We do second Sunday every second Sunday. Why? Not because we just want to eat snacks. It provides an opportunity for connection. When we connect with one another, we grow in community with one another so that we can learn how that together we can best serve God in this faith community and beyond. And a God-centered self-concept gives me an accurate view of my faith community. I just don't show up and leave. I'm part of something. But Paul's not done. Paul begins in verse 6. We have different gifts according to the grace given each of us. And he's going to list the gifts. And that brings us to our our third thing for this morning. A God-centered self-concept gives me an accurate view of my God-given abilities we need to know that god has enabled each of us in different ways now i'm going to work through this part but i will 
advertisement. We looked at it in detail this past fall and winter. And if you want to go and, and find out about and watch that, there is actually a set of YouTube videos. I, you have to reach out to me. I'll send you the link. It's an unlisted YouTube channel, so you won't find it anywhere just by Googling it. But if you would want to get a more detailed of what we're going to talk about here, it is available. Uh, Paul says we have these different gifts. The word that's translated gift comes from the root word, which we get our term, grace. God, in his grace, gives us grace in the form of abilities. Simply stated, uh, a gift here is what Paul would call a God-given ability. Now, when you consider that we're all created in the image of God, it stands to reason that all of our abilities are God-given. Everything you can do is a God-given ability. You may be great at, at business. You may be an athlete. You may be an academic. You may be able to sit down and listen to someone and listen to their concerns and give them guidance as a counselor. You may be able to just come along some slide, we'll talk about it in a minute, and just you, you have that word to say that someone feels encouraged. All of that is God-given. I, I grew up around farmers in Kansas. You know, that's, that's why our, our, we have the harvest here. This is, this is harvest time. And, uh, you know, and, and, and the farmers, the, the knowledge that they have of the land and how to work the land and all, that's knowledge that's gained through experience, but it's still God-given. Everything that you and I can do is God-given. So you got to keep them out. And, and so Paul is saying, use your unique abilities for the good of the faith community. And so he's going to give a few examples. And I think it's significant to look at not only the example, but a couple times he explains a little bit of the mindset that goes with the example. And again, we're going to skim over these. And he says, so you have these gifts. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. Prophecy is the ability to speak God's truth into a given situation or into someone's life. It's in a way that might challenge them. It might encourage them. It might strengthen them. Sometimes it's a way that you can kind of see what's coming down the road that other people can't see. A, pro <laughs> a prophet is not limited to being a preacher. A prophet understands how to apply biblical truth to cultural realities. And Paul says they do this in accordance with the measure of your faith. Or another way of saying that is in complete dependence upon the Spirit. Paul says maybe serving. If it is serving, then serve. Serving means to provide help to another in a practical way. And what Paul says, if, if, you're, if that's you, if you just know, if when, some, if when there's a need, you know how to practically apply help to it, do it. Some people are bent to seeing to it that others are helped. It's just their nature. They want to help. They, they, want to, they want to step in. And that kind of help comes in all shapes, sizes, and forms. He goes on. If it is teaching, then teach. Simple definition, teaching imparting knowledge to others. And in this context, he's talking to 
the church. So in this context, he would say, maybe you have the ability to sit there at the house church with those 10 or 15 people around the living room, uh, and, and you have the ability to look at God's Word, what we have available to it in 60 AD, 59 AD, what we have available, and you have the ability to look at it and say, hey, this is what this means. This is how it applies. If it's teaching, teach. Instruct. Apply. Help people understand God's Word. Now, other people use their teaching skills in other ways, and it's okay. Just use what God has given you. He says here, if it's to encourage, then give encouragement. The word that's translated encourage means to come alongside. It's a similar word that's used of the Holy Spirit in John 14 when Jesus said, I'm going to send another counselor. I'm going to send another encourager. I'm going to, it's the, word, the, the literal word, if we transliterate, would be paraclete. Encourage, come alongside. There are people that do that so well. There are some great encouragers out there. there there's an individual, Charlene and I are walking toward the French market one morning, and uh, another man and his wife were coming this way. I've known him. His organization have, has used our, our gym several times, and, and he just stopped. He said, you know, I'm going to tell you, Scott, every time I drive by your church and I read the sign, I just pray for Pleasant Hill Community Church, and I pray for you, and I pray for you just to keep at it. That man is an encourager. We talked for two minutes, and I walked away encouraged. Some people just have that natural ability to encourage. And in this context, it's right here, but it could be anywhere. Come alongside another individual and just that one word, hey, I, just to say, I'm just glad you're here today. Really? You notice that I'm here? That's encouraging. To come along someone else and say, you know what? How's it going? I, I, I walked in to our dorm bathroom one night, the spring of my freshman year at Moody Bible Institute. And there was a guy in there. He was shaving, and I, I said, hey, how you doing? You're, you're graduating. How's it going? He asked the question I think a lot of us want to ask when someone asks that. Do you really want to know? God gave me the grace in that moment. I turned around and hopped up on the counter and sat there and said, yeah, yeah, I do. And we talked for about 20 minutes. He was, he was, it's Moody Bible slash Bridal Institute. So yes, he was engaged. He was a senior. It was kind of like a, a graduation requirement, uh, you know, and he's concerned about getting a job and getting married and this and that. And I just sat there and listened. That was way beyond, that was way above my pay grade. You know, I'm a freshman. I'm, uh, I'm 20 years old at that point. You know, I just started dating Charlene. I knew nothing, but I could listen. That's encouragement. Just giving what you have. And in that way, that person is strengthened, they're comforted, they're renewed in spirit. They're reminded by your presence that God is there and God is working. Paul says, if it is giving, then give generously. Giving's not a hard one. We know what it is to give. And you know, there are some people that, that that's just them. They're just givers. And they give what they have with an open hand. But Paul says the standard for giving is not how much you give. 
It's to be generous. To hold, and, and you know, that generosity begins in your own spirit. Everything I have, I hold up to God in an open hand. And, and, and that means my, my, my closest relationships, my wife, my children, my grandchildren, God, they're yours. Be generous with what you have. God will make sure that you're taken care of. And, 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 and when you're generous, you need to work to not have an ulterior motive. If I give God $100, he's going to give me back 1000 There is no promise of that. You will not find that kind. What God does promise is, I'll meet your needs. And I can honestly say, Charlene were here, she would say the same thing. God has met our needs in so many ways. And I bet if we could have testimony time, different ones say, yes, God has met my needs in ways I could never imagine. God said, Paul says, if it's giving, then give and be open-handed. Give generously. I would remind you that money and possessions are not the only things that you can give. You can give of your time. You can give of your skills. You can give of your abilities. Paul says, if it's to lead, do it diligently. The word lead is a word that means to go before, to provide, to preside over. When we look at this term and other examples in the Bible, we find that a true leader in a faith community cares about those around them. That person is not there to be put on a pedestal. We just finished watching a documentary uh, about a large church in New York City that totally collapsed because the leader was trained by his leader to, that you were the man. And, you know, and, and, and I read other articles. This leader, when they came to church with an arena full of people, full of celebrities, wouldn't be hanging around here talking to people, entered with a private limo into a private elevator that took him up to the green room that he sat there and maybe hobnobbed with a few NBA players until he went out and was the star of the show and then went back and disappeared again. And, and, and eventually the whole thing came collapsing down because you can't live under the weight of that kind of popularity and maintain a good and godly stance. And, and, and the idea is, no, you lead first by serving. You lead by example you're not there to be put on a pedestal. You start with a correct view of who you are in the eyes of God and who I am in the eyes of God is a sinner and I'm only in this position of leadership because of God's grace in my life and I should serve it with humility. Leading diligently would then be to lead in a way that is good and noble and not self-seeking or arrogant. And Paul finishes with, if it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. The word that's translated mercy is a word that has the idea of compassion or even pity. It, it, it's a companion word in the Old Testament. The, the word that the, 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 they translated mercy in the Old Testament was that word loving kindness. It's used most to describe God. He is loving kind. There are people in this world, there are people that you know, it may be you, who have a deep compassion for others. They even feel their pain. As a kid, I saw mercy exemplified by my granny, my granny Barry. 
she would make, I, I would come in, we would be there on vacation because that's where we spent our vacations and she would be making a pot of her fresh homemade vegetable soup. It was to die for. And she would be putting it in mason jars and waiting till it cooled a little bit and she would seal it and then you would see her carrying a box out to the car. My granny had orthopedic shoes that she wore, kind of high heels, so there was a little bit of clomping going on and she would put it in that car, her 1976 Oldsmobile Delta 88 as wide as a 747 and she would drive that car over the mountain because somebody she knew was sick and she was taking soup to them. Mercy personified. There are people who have that compassion for others. They not only feel it, they feel their pain. And Paul says in that moment, you know what? There's a thing out there called compassion fatigue. I don't know if you've ever heard about it, but it's like you're so giving to other people, it wears you out. And Paul warns us, when you have mercy and you show mercy, do it cheerfully. People will wear you out. And it's important to know when to take a break so that you can be positive helpers, not reluctant helpers. You and I cannot do any of this on our own. We are not called to do this on our own. These characteristics here that Paul lists in Romans 12 are not the sum total of all the ways that you can live before God. They are samples. And you can take those samples and you can apply them in so many other ways. No one has to do all of these things. And if maybe your particular skill set's not listed here, it doesn't mean you're off the hook. Simply have sensible evaluation. How has God enabled you? Now, the context here is the local church. It's the house churches in Rome. And we can use our abilities, though, in the local community. But it begins first, all the way back in chapter 12, verse 1. It begins first, when I give myself to God as a living sacrifice, and I allow God to transform me by the renewing of my mind. And that means I spend time talking to God, praying to Him, reading and reflecting on His Word, the Bible, getting together with people in my faith community and asking together how the Bible applies to our lives, building relationship with others who can help me on the journey because I need, you need, a God-centered self-concept. Jim Valvano's father believed in him even when his team lost the big games. It was. It is an amazing gift. A child needs to know their father is for them. And earthly fathers fail. But we who follow Jesus know that our heavenly father not only is for us, he sent his son to die for us because he loves us and he values us deeply. Seeing ourselves through God's eyes helps us develop a God-centered self-concept. And a God-centered self-concept gives me an accurate view of who I am, what I can do, and how I can live wisely in my world. And God willing, next week we'll start looking about how to live wisely in our world. Father, thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the reminders here. Lord, I pray that today, as we look at our own lives, I pray that today as we 
Think about how you have enabled us, how you have given us skills. How, Lord, I think as we think today about the people you've brought into our lives. I know we, we celebrate dads today, but there's so many people that you've brought into our lives. So many people that have come alongside and encouraged, taught, corrected, directed. Lord, use all of that to help us see our lives through a lens that is God-centered that enables us to have sensible evaluation of who we are. And then, Lord, may we go and serve you with all of the energy you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.